Hello and welcome to the fifth season of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and we're back with brand new weekly episodes where I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. Since announcing this season on social media, I've had a lot of really nice comments from listeners and all your feedback is always appreciated. So if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest this week is Charlotte Howell-Jones, a climate campaigner trying to change the world one story at a time. Charlotte's work primarily focuses on creating change and building the climate movement through storytelling, communications and content. A Somerset resident for over 20 years, she is passionate about helping others make an emotional connection with nature. When not busy collaborating with organisations like Dear Tomorrow and Parents for Future UK, she'll most likely be found foraging or nurturing her veg patch with two muddy children. Charlotte, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you for having me. We are meeting on the spring equinox. Uh, what does this time of year mean to you? I love this time of year. It's a time for gardening, which for me is very exciting. Um, we spend a lot of time outside in the veg patch with two very muddy children. So it's time to get us to do a lot of planting. And I don't know, it's just a lovely time in nature. I've quite a strong connection in nature. Yeah, it's just a really special time of year for me. I love seeing nature sort of coming back out into bloom, all the blossoms, the daffodils, everything. Our garden is really wild, so it's a sea of crocuses at the moment, which brings us all a lot of joy. They go on a lot of our cakes. <laughs> um, it's just a really nice time of year. I think a lot of people like spring, but I'm quite sad to see winter ending as well. We're also in a part of the county that I have to admit, I don't know very well. We're on the southern fringes of Bath. What would be your recommendations for, I don't know, maybe a weekend just in the vicinity of, of where we are now? So we're in a very lucky position to be right in the middle of the countryside. Also, it feels but also a stone's throw away from Bath. So if you were to visit this area, then you've got a lot, a lot to visit. Uh, you could wander into town through... Uh, the National Trust property, um, Pye Park Gardens, and that's always a delight. What I would say is don't miss Castle Farm. They've got the best uh, restaurant there. You need to book ahead, but it's absolutely not to be missed. Best restaurant in Bath. It's just such a beautiful area. The walks around here are stunning, down by the canal, uh, through, through the valleys. On the canal, I was looking at that because when I was looking at how to get here, I saw there was sort of boating and bike rides and that kind of thing. Is worth worth looking at that for a, a nice sunny day, messing around in boats on the canal? Is that something you've done? Yeah, absolutely. We do it from time to time. It's really nice down there. You can take paddle boards really easily, um, which we do. Uh, we love water sports, so it's really, really um, great to get down there. Yeah, there's some lovely bike rides as well. You can ride all the way into town, along the canal, into Bath. And likewise, up the other way, you can, I used to cycle to work in Trowbridge um, along the canal, which uh, is a beautiful route. You see kingfishers, squirrels all over the place. We, we saw a squirrel fall into the river from a tree once, which is quite fun. Um, it got out, don't worry. <laughs> I didn't know squirrels could swim. Um, Strange anecdote. No, I don't think I've ever seen a squirrel <laughs> no. swim before either. 
The nice thing about a canal for bike rides as well is also that, it, you know, it's flat. Absolutely. It's quite bumpy, but you can go a long way. Uh, and it's great with the children as yeah. well. Prior to us recording, I asked you to share a little bit of information about you and what you do and where you come from and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. One of the things that you sent me was that your family has a connection to mining. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so my grandparents are, well, both my grandfathers are from the Forest of Dean. Um, my great-grandfather was a miner. Um, he had worked in a number of shafts around the Forest of Dean. And my grandfather was a gaveler for the Forest of Dean. So he looked after the land above and below the land. Um, so he was in charge of all the, the mines. And there's quite a lot of free mining that goes on in the Forest of Dean as well, which my family has been quite heavily involved with over the years. So there's a certain irony in the fact that I now am a fossil fuel campaigner, but that's, that's my background. So a couple of follow-up questions there. Two things that I know literally nothing about. One being free mining, and the other is what a gaveler is and does. Could you shed some light on that? Yeah, so a gaveler... Um, is somebody that looks after the land. So above the land, below the land, he was in charge of the mines, he was in charge of managing uh, the forest. And when, you know, areas needed some attention, felling. Yeah, so he worked for the Forestry Commission, essentially, and that's one of their key roles. So basically, um, free mining is when there are mines that are open to, you have a free mining association and those miners go and they share a mine and then they go and get their own coal, basically. They don't take too much, they just take out what they needed. So Forest of Dean then, is that somewhere that was close to you when you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be there every moment I could. Um, We moved around quite a lot as children and that was my constant and my favorite place to be i just always wanted to be out in the woods with my grandparents and and they always wanted to be outside they were really keen on um being outside in nature Uh, so you know we would wake up in the morning go and work in the garden have an amazing lunch and then always have a walk through the woods and there's a really lovely community spirit where my grandparents were. They knew all their neighbours. It was just it was a really special place to be. What were you like at school as a, as a pupil? Did you have any favourite subjects? <laughs> it was like a long time ago now. Um, art was one of my favourite subjects. I was always drawing, drawing birds, drawing flowers. Could always be found in the art room. And geography, absolutely loved geography. And probably should have carried on given where I am now but um, I loved school but I was always thinking about other things I would be running sort of cake sales or FIMO sales making badges so that I could buy up little bits of rainforest I think even then I was always thinking about the sort of bigger picture and what was going on in the world and worrying slightly about what, what we were doing to it even at that point You've been here almost 20 years yeah. in the area, not this house. What brought you here originally? I left university and I had no ties, um, no geographic ties, no ties from family. My parents had moved whilst I was at university 
my friends had nearly all headed into London and I really did not want to go live in London. Um, I wanted to be in the countryside and my sister was living nearby. I thought, well, I'll go and go and stay with her for a little while and see what it's like in this area and just totally fell in love with Bath. And that was it really. I was able to hop on a train easily to see all my friends in London and I could get to the coast. I loved surfing, so um, it was easy to get down to North Devon. So it was a, a perfect spot. And I just felt really at home in Bath. I think there's something about the architecture and the fact that it's in this sort of valley basin that just is um, really, really welcoming. Am I right in saying you studied at Bath as well? Yes, um, I did my undergraduate in uh, Cardiff and a postgraduate down there at the School of Journalism. But um, after working for a little while, I realised I wanted to retrain um, and I did a master's in international development at Bath um, a little bit later on down the line. What was that student experience like? It was brilliant. It was so nice. I mean, I love studying. I would study all the time if I could. But it was nice going back, having made that decision. It was pretty tricky because I already had a mortgage and things like that. Sorry. I was working in the week, working in a cafe on the weekend, sort of pay fees, etc. But I missed out a little bit on some of the student life the second time around. But I really valued the opportunity to study again. As you alluded to earlier, when you said you didn't continue studying geography, you've not always been a campaigner. What first prompted you towards what you do now? So I worked in international development for many years and I was drawn more and more to projects that looking at the impacts of climate change and conservation agriculture and sort of adaption projects for agricultural projects mainly in Africa and I just became more and more interested and the more I read the more worried I got and then when I went on maternity leave with my daughter the intergovernmental panel on climate change came out with a report that was so stark and so clear um, I realised that I wanted to do more and it was really hard to ignore having a child and realising the destruction that we were doing to the planet and that there were alternatives out there just seemed quite, it just seemed incredulous. And yeah, so I started to do more campaigning from that point on. And the more I read and the more I campaigned, the more I wanted to do. And it was a little bit like a <laughs> tumbleweed moment I suppose. Yeah what's the tipping point so how do you go from a place where it's an issue that's close to your heart and you want to uh, you want to change you want to do something about to actually going into this as a where I spend all of my time? I think for me it was realizing that I was doing so much volunteering work that I couldn't actually fit in going back to my normal Work, but financially that wasn't really <laughs> that sustainable. I think it's just such an important, I mean this is an existential threat to humanity and it doesn't seem, it doesn't feel like to me that you can do anything else or for me as a person, as a mom, what else would I be doing right now than trying to protect their future? Your experience and your understanding of international development must have proven to be 
a benefit when it comes to to campaigning and and to putting those transferable skills and experience to different use, I suppose. Yeah, I think I I probably have drawn a lot on the experience that I've had in the past. I mean, I worked very much on comms and project management, and that's quite transferable, um, definitely to the climate movement. I would say, though, that most of my campaigning comes from the heart. It comes from being a worried parent and... I'm not doing this because I'm an expert in climate change. I'm doing this because I can see that what we're doing isn't right for for people, for the planet. Um, And yeah, so it's my campaigning really, really does stem from just being a worry parent and um, realizing that there are other, there are solutions out there that we can be taking right now that are simple solutions. Seemingly, we just need that political and corporate momentum to build. It is such a big space with so many different topics and areas that people can get involved in and have a focus. How do you find your your niche, your part of the conversation when it comes to climate, the environment, the natural world and, and protection? Or do you just decide to be active across all different topics? For me, I started out looking at reducing plastic. I mean, that was my first stepping stone into into doing more campaign work. I was a volunteering with Surfers Against Sewage as one of their plastic community um, leads, whereby you were trying to ask local organisations to reduce the plastic that they're using, whether that's a cafe or a business. Yeah, I started off looking at reducing plastic, then the more you look into it, you want to actually stop plastic at source. So that campaigning um, took a different, you know, it's that next step on. It's like, well, why are we producing this amount of plastic? Why aren't we thinking about different, more circular um, forms of, of packaging? So I started out doing that work, and the more, the more I did, the more I read, and I then realised that, I really wanted to tackle the bigger issue of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels create the most emissions. Our emissions continue to rise because of our reliance on fossil fuels. And it felt like that was the thing to focus on. And in terms of your audience, from what I've seen, is it specifically to other parents that you're trying to uh, to talk to? And is that the the level which you find you have a, a that personal connection. You said it was the campaigning being from the heart and does talking to other parents enable that to happen you know, more naturally, perhaps? So I looked around lots of different organisations when I started campaigning. Um, Surfers Against Sewage was a natural uh, fit for me because I loved surfing, I loved the water. I was outraged by the amount of sewage that we're pumping into our oceans, um, outraged by the amount of plastic that we're producing unnecessarily but then I came across Parents for Future as well and I really liked the approach of of how they campaign it's very inclusive there's no sort of imperative to be on the streets with a placard but the campaigning work with Parents for Future is strategic and very well thought through and there's so many different ways to get involved whether that's to you know, booking meetings with your MP or actually, yeah, taking to the streets with a placard, but not ruling that out. Um, but it just felt like a, a space that I was a lot more comfortable in. And I think it's so important. There are so many parents out there 
that have so much power that they don't know about, whether that's just voting for somebody that is going to protect your local environment or protect the environment globally um, and have that impact. There's a lot of focus in the climate movement on youth. And I think a lot of the figureheads in the climate movement are from the youth movement, which is brilliant, but it worries slightly that it's almost like a get out of a get out clause for adults in that, oh, well, the, the youth are gonna sort that out. You know, they're doing so well at that, but actually it's our role to be <laughs> pushing back on this as well. And if you've got children that are too young to be involved in that, you know, it's very hard to see them growing up and not, and having a question mark, a real question mark over their future. And knowing that a lot of families on the front line of the climate crisis are directly every day being impacted and being in danger because of the decisions that our governments in the global north are, are making. Yeah, I just think it's so, so important that we reach out to parents as well and that they're really engaged in the climate movement every bit as much, if not more so, than uh, the youth, who, quite frankly, <laughs> they really deserve to have a bit of, you know, their youth and not be absolutely racked with fear about climate change and having to feel that they're dealing with that on their own. And the other thing I think it's really important, the other reason I think it's very important to get parents involved in the climate movement is because their children are going to see them doing that. And children are increasingly worried. There's lots of research about children being, you know, terrified about their futures. They can see what's happening. They can see the news reports and the increased flooding, the increase in fires, um, the extreme heat we had last summer. They, they join the dots very quickly. And if they see their parents acting, then that's like an act of solidarity. They know that their parents are on their side and they're doing everything they can to make sure they have a safe, healthy future ahead of them. So I think it's very good from that perspective as well. And also to be thinking about these issues as a family as well. Not that I would advocate talking to your children about climate change too young. Far from it, but... So my kids are six and seven. Yeah. And have a natural curiosity for all of those kinds of things. I think they relate very well to animals and the natural world and our impact on, on that as well. So I think you're right, there is a, a joining of the dots piece. And I think a lot of parents, particularly of a certain age and demographic, will, will maybe hedge their bets a little bit and say, you know, well, this is, this is what we do. And we talk about recycling, we talk about, you know, choices that, that we make. But I suppose what my question is, what's the sort of percentage increase or, or what, what more, what are the additional steps that you would say to parents you can do beyond just that to have a, a bigger impact on what they're doing as a family? That's a really good question. I am a huge advocate of recycling, but that it, I hear that very often people will say, well, we're doing recycling, so I think we're doing our bit. And actually, we're sort of at a point within the climate crisis where we need to be thinking a lot. We need to be thinking a little bit larger than that. I think 
As parents, there's so much more that we could be doing. Recycling is fantastic, don't get me wrong, but again, that next step is pushing back on reducing the amount of plastic that's being produced, cutting the plastic. And also, I would really like to take the emphasis off of what the individual is doing, because right now we really need to be pushing for the political and the corporate momentum. And we want that to happen so, so quickly. We need to be voting for candidates that are going to put a stop to all new fossil fuel projects. And that, to me, if you make that vote is way more important than, you know, trying to recycle your tablet packaging, which is really tricky. Um, yeah, so number one, I would say vote, please vote. And I keep coming back to fossil fuels, but at the moment, our reliance on fossil fuels is exacerbating the cost of living crisis. We've got 20% in our community this area, North East Somerset, 20% of families are living in fuel poverty. And that is because we are so reliant on fossil fuels. Um, we've got a government at the moment that is trying to open new fossil fuel projects in the North Sea. There's a project called Rosebank um, that they're trying to push through at the moment that would create the same emissions as the 28 lowest income countries in the world would in a year. We really can't afford these emissions. The IPCC report um, clearly states we can't have any new fossil fuels if we're going to keep the planet livable. And that's just livable. That's not a thriving planet for our children. So yes, vote for, <laughs> getting back to your point, getting back to your question, please vote for um, candidates that are going to put a stop to all new fossil fuel projects because it's so imperative right now. Um, and also we need to be voting for candidates that are going to protect our civil rights because at the moment they're being extraordinarily diminished under our current government. Um, we've just been downgraded in the global report by Civicus on our civil rights and it's so important that we have those in place um, so that we can function democratically and push back when our governments aren't doing the right thing. I'm not talking about sort of being able to do willy-nilly destructive uh, activism, I'm talking about just the basic civil rights here that are being diminished. I mean we're on a par at the moment, I think the next step is if we were downgraded again, we would be down with the Philippines and Colombia, countries where they're actually killing environmental or planet people that are trying to protect the planet. And we really don't want to be going there. Something you picked up on there was that individual responsibility versus the corporate and government take on it. One of the things that is frustrating for me when I look at this is how that narrative has been so easily swallowed by the public in terms of it's about me and what I do. And so things like people posting about Earth Hour, which was a couple of days ago, and, you know, switching off devices for an hour, and as if that's sort of the big change that, that needs to be made. And you're right, those are, those are good things, but really a drop in the ocean when it comes to what change is actually needed. And that kind of 
the narrative of if individuals change, then it's fine. But actually, what we're going to do is give a free pass to corporates and, and energy companies to to put out all the emissions that they want. Absolutely. I think I would never want to sort of see an either or scenario. Individual action is hugely important as well. And I think these, it's really important to remember that those are usually the first steps that make people think a little bit more and build into um, doing more campaigning work and to thinking more widely about about the environment. So they are important, but at this point, we really need to be really focusing, using our power. We, as individuals, there is something we can do, but it's more in using our power as parents through, through voting, voting with our money as well. So switching away from organisations that are having a negative impact on our environment. For example, switching your pension to a green pension scheme can have a massive impact compared to, say, trying to use one less plastic pot a week. So it's, you know, thinking a little bit more broadly, switching away from banks that are investing heavily in fossil fuels. So, yeah, we have power, but I would say let's use it on thinking where our money is going, voting, and maybe joining an organisation, looking at all the organisations out there, because there were... There's power in numbers as well. So if we can join together, share ideas, then it's a lot easier. And also that at Parents to Future, we have a sort of more holistic support system as well. So if you are struggling, thinking crumbs, what impact is this having on my child or my child's having a few issues here, then we have, you know, we have a community who are there to, to, to look after those needs as well as of just you know campaigning inspiration so it's a much more it's a much bigger picture i think is that financial mot something that parents for future can do as well so to say this is all of all of your finances look like this here's the changes that you can make in order to have this much impact on where your money is sitting and going parents for future don't really focus on that we We'll partner with organisations that specialise in different areas. So um, Richard Curtis has got this brilliant organisation that he set up that really has all the information you need on switching your pension to a green fund. Um, there are other organisations um, like You Switch, um, Switch It Green, I think it's called, that you know you can go on their site and easily just type in your current energy supplier for example and then they will come up with better green options that um, have a much lower impact on the on the planet you did mention not necessarily talking about climate change with children too young and at a too intense level, what's what's the balance? How do you get that approach right? And are there other things that you can spend time uh, investigating and, and talking about with them? Naturally, all children are different. But for me and my kids, I don't talk to them too much about climate change. I explain when they ask questions and I 
try to just instill a deep love of nature. I feel like if children can be outside and just experiencing the joy, even if they can't be outside, if they're reading books about nature and, and wildlife and getting a real love and a real connection with it, then they will naturally want to protect that when they're old enough to think about it. But I don't want them to uh, be living in fear of what's going to happen next, maybe because they've had too much information too early for them to process. Um, again, I know every child is different, but for me, that's really important, getting that love of nature far outweighs um, the need for chatting about climate change at the dinner table on a Monday evening. What kind of reaction do you find that you get from other parents? That best and at worst? That's a really good question. I have had some really um, unusual responses in the past. Some parents have come up to me and said, you know, you make me feel really quite guilty about my life, um, which I'm mortified about because literally my, all of the things that I try to do, my campaigning work focuses on system change, not on individual change. I'm fully supportive of what we've just chatted about, about making um, individual changes. Um, but I'm so far from perfect myself and my family, you know, I just feel like I would hate people to feel like that. We really, really need to, to be focusing on, on system change, not on making anyone feel guilty because that's not going to achieve our goals here. Um, but on the positive side, we get lots of people at Parents of Future coming to our meet and greet meetings and almost being in tears because they're just so grateful to have found a community of like-minded people and knowing that you don't have to be perfect to be part of that you know you just have to care and if you care and you want to do a little bit or a lot then that's a really great space for you um so we get a lot of really positive feedback there and i think the fact that more and more parents are coming along and joining us and getting involved is sort of a testament to that. And then I get the odd person that's sort of been lurking on Instagram um, who will then say, you know, oh, I, I read this post um, and I, I, I've made a change because of that. Or I've just been looking at how to switch my pension. Thanks very much. And you just think, oh, wow, I didn't even know you'd seen that. That's really nice, really nice to hear. Yeah, generally it's really positive. I very rarely get stuff negative feedback. Do you find that people, once they understand what system change means, because I think maybe that's a little bit of a barrier when people go, what is it that you're trying to achieve with this? Are you, you know, the, the point that you made about people feeling guilty and that being one of the potentially negative side effects of being very active in, um, in climate campaigning that, that other people would go, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm terrible, uh, all of these things. When in actual fact, you, the point that you make is, it's far more important to change things at a macro level. Individual is important, but the macro thing is what we need to focus on because it's gonna have a bigger swing of the pendulum. So do you think once people have got over that little hurdle, they're more likely to embrace taking a more active approach to, towards having an impact on system change? Yeah, I do think some of the terminology that is used in the environmental movement, and I'm probably guilty of this as well, isn't helpful. So, you know, talking about system change is perhaps, you know, quite unhelpful. Um, but 
I do. I wholeheartedly feel that that's that's right. I mean, as soon as people realise that the impact that just stopping, say, one oil field could have, it's huge. Um, as opposed to, you know, if you try to use your car less, then that's brilliant. But Biden's just approved a new oil project called Willow in the US, for example, that's going to create, I think, the same emissions as two million extra cars on the road each year, just from that one project, which, you know, it puts it into perspective. So if parents are going to take any action at all, then I really would, going back to your question earlier, I don't think I perhaps answered it very clearly, but, you know, as well as using your vote, then really push for renewable energy right now. It's one of the most important things that we can do. Fossil fuels creates the most emissions by far. And now renewable energy in the UK, for example, onshore wind is, um, and wind energy is eight times, eight to nine times cheaper than new oil and gas. And I think we get a lot of people saying, oh, but we need new oil and gas fields in the UK because we've got this energy crisis, but actually, no, those new oil and gas fields that we're trying, they're trying to open in the UK, they're not owned by the UK. So that oil and gas won't necessarily go to anyone in the UK and it certainly won't bring down our bills. But if we move off of these fossil fuels that are destroying, you know, creating so many carbon emissions and are very, very expensive and move to the much cheaper, homegrown, home-owned renewable energy, then we've got we can you know, move away from being reliant on Putin's gas. We can have a safe, clean, green form of energy that actually lowers our bills. So it not only helps us you know, um, reduce our emissions and hopefully keep the planet at a stable level at the very least, um, but it also will bring down our bills now for those people in our communities that are really suffering from the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis. You mentioned Willow and Biden approving that. And you also mentioned the most important thing, or one of the most important things, being voting for candidates that are not going to uh, commit to new fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Biden did say that that was off the table. Is that right? Yep. So what happens when politicians go back on their promises? It's horrendous, isn't it? I mean, in the UK, we had the moratorium on fracking that was in the Tory manifesto. And then we had that lifted last year. And you just think, but that was in your manifesto. People voted for you because that was in your manifesto and it meant nothing. But the thing is, we need people to push back. That's where we need parents to engage and to have, um, and to use their voices. Uh, in Somerset, we pushed back hard on that. We had Rhys Smog saying he would be happy to have fracking in his own back garden, which was frankly, you know, he lives in a beautiful area. I don't know how his neighbours would feel about turning his back garden into a toxic wasteland, but, you know, <laughs> politicians don't always do what they say they're going to do. But at least there are candidates, candidates now that say, and there's a whole party, I don't know whether we can go into party politics, but saying that they will not allow any new oil and gas licensing. 
Um, and that is imperative right now. And as I've said, I know a lot of people think, oh, but we do need, we need oil and gas for that transition because there are some products that we need. But we have enough in the system already and we don't, we don't have the capacity environmentally to allow that to happen. So we, we have to balance that and it has to be a fair transition away from oil and gas. We're quite fortunate in some ways in this country that because of where we sit in the world, the effects of climate change are not always as blunt and as pointy as you might see elsewhere uh, in, in the world. But I think it is important to be aware that, to be aware of the effect at a local level. You look around and, you know, we're in Somerset, there's trees everywhere, there's nature everywhere. It's quite easy to look out the window and think, what climate crisis, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see people, families dying, losing their homes because of the climate crisis elsewhere, and it's easy to detach yourself. It's hard to see, but it does seem one step removed. I and mean, we had the extreme heat last year. It was a real indication with schools closing and um, hospitals struggling to keep patients cool. But one thing we probably don't see is that across the country, 97% of us are breathing toxic air. Our children are breathing toxic air. But we're sat here in a valley surrounded by trees and yet the air pollution here exceeds three World Health Organization limits. And people don't see that, but that's what we need to be pushing back on because that's impacting our kids' health. That's you know, really, really awful for children with asthma, um, but also something that we shouldn't be living with. Why would we have 97% of our population breathing toxic air? Just because of, you know, making some people thinking that perhaps a wind turbine doesn't look that nice. But really, in comparison to having clean air for our children, it's nothing, is it? I don't want to trivialise the severity of the topic that we've been talking about. But at the same time, I do want to celebrate achievements and positivity and optimism as well. So when you look back at the time and effort that you've spent in, in your campaigning, what are the things that you look back and go, I'm really proud that we've got that done or made this, made this impact? That's a really good question. I, I really fully kind of on board with celebrating the wins as well, because if, without that positivity, we don't have hope and without hope, we're not going to continue. So it, we need it for our sustainability in this area. So for me, it would be three, three things. One, we've been campaigning hard to hold an oil field called Cambo, west of Shetland, and we managed to get Shell to pull out of funding that project. Um, so there is a halt on that oil field at the moment, which felt like a huge win. So that's one. Two was getting, as we just mentioned, the fracking moratorium ban was lifted last year and we campaigned hard against that and we managed to get that reinstated, which felt like a huge win. And it was so important that we did that because fracking is so destructive and so very expensive as well. It really wasn't the solution in the UK. So yeah, that felt like a really, really big win. But also I think one of the sort of last visual, visible wins for me is the fact that the parent community is growing. Um, 
and the number of parents that are pushing back and willing to sort of get a little bit more involved in the environmental movement is growing. And that realisation that there are so many different ways to, to get involved and they are getting involved, it's just really, you know, it's, it's brilliant to see. We talked a little bit about the guilt associated with people when it comes to their own impact on, on climate change, on plastics, on those kinds of things. And one of the things that you were saying earlier was about how it's seen as I have to make lots of negative changes to my life or things that are going to take more time, more effort, or things that um, are going to cost more. And that kind of the personal cost of being more active and having a greater impact on, on the environment, I think is one of those things, again, that's a, a potential barrier for people. But you were saying there's a different way of looking at it, right? There's a positive way of looking at those changes. In tackling the climate crisis, I think there's so much opportunity, um, whether, you know, just to have more green spaces, which we all know is so good for our mental health, um, cleaning up our rivers, our air, our, our sea, our soil, just, and also building that sense of community again. I just think that society can really flourish as a, as a result if we all pull together and just tackle it now. Um, the alternative is kind of unthinkable, really. Um, so maybe it's time that we just start thinking about the opportunities and really pushing for the, the change that we need that's really going to make the most impact. So um, let's get some clean homegrown energy going. Um, as fast as possible, please. Charlotte, before we go, where can people find out more about what you're doing and what Parents for Future uh, and other organisations are doing, where they can get more resources, more information, um, and understand what steps they can, they can take? Yeah, please do come in and find out more about Parents for Future. Um, there are local groups across the area, so you can get involved locally or nationally. Um, have a look on our website, parentsforfuture.org.uk or come and find us on Instagram. And we're on Facebook and Twitter as well. So come along and have a look um, and just maybe just drop us a follow on Instagram, see what kind of um, campaigns we're getting involved with. If they resonate with you, maybe you want to um, get a little bit more involved. Charlotte, thank you so much for your time. Um, you've been a wonderful guest. It's been great talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Somerset Stories is a Whitstone production and music is provided by Jazar under Creative Commons.